From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn, a podcast produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Thomas Phillips. As smartphones, smart appliances, and even smart homes become more ubiquitous, it's easy to lose track of where our data goes and who's benefiting from it. Data swarms, and how they're being used and abused, are part of our reality. This week, we're celebrating the opening of the Science Gallery's new Swarm exhibition with three stories about data swarms and how the collection of data is changing life as we know it. These stories were produced for the Science Gallery, and this is the fourth episode in our Swarm series. They were developed with mentors from all the best. First up, Clancy Balin on how entire smart cities harvest data from their citizens. Do you ever get the feeling that you're being watched? Or followed? Tracked, maybe? Well, these days we are. We all are. Private actors or local governments. Here in Australia, someone's always watching you. And they need something from us to work. They get this thing by tracking us. Through CCTV, sensors, public transport, billboards. The thing that I'm talking about is... Data. 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 You've guessed it. It's data. Specifically your data. In fact... This is a story about how huge swarms of data, your data, is being used to feed the city. So in a technical sense, a smart city would be a city that is making use of large-scale heterogeneous, as in varied, data sets. That's Scott McQuire, a professor of media and communications at the University of Melbourne. And it is performing analytics on those data sets and it is trying to apply learning from those data sets to various kinds of urban processes. Although smart cities are a fairly new thing, cities have always collected data to work. Cities have always had certain types of data. It might be about resource use, you know, how much electricity do we use or so on and so forth. But as the ability to collect data from a population has become easier and easier, the idea of the smart city began to emerge. But a smart city concept is more around the capacity to have network sensors, mobile devices, the kind of data you can collect through that. And so it's trying to integrate mesh network of data collection. So what is this network of data collection and how is it collected? Well, the surveillance is ubiquitous. Our data is constantly being collected by... Traditional institutions like transport companies. E-tickets, utilities. Like power companies or water supply or so on. Local governments. Fairly benign things that are intended to help the city run more smoothly. The idea being that all your data is sucked up and fed into this petri dish that is the city, allowing it to grow. Like a social network, the smart city is only as good as the amount of information it receives. Air pollution, water quality, energy use, transport, foot traffic. With as many as 2 million CCTV cameras in Australia, it's no exaggeration to say we're constantly being watched. Even your movements are being tracked. There are cameras everywhere in the CBD. The smart city demands a certain level of surveillance, so you can say that's part of the infrastructure. You know what? Let's get a quick legal perspective before we continue. Dr Jake Goldenfein, a lawyer and senior lecturer at Melbourne Uni, Western democratic liberal law thinks about a person who's given rights in terms of privacy and property. And so privacy laws that have developed 
in the context of earlier ideas of network communications, they're trying to protect a version of privacy that really can't exist anymore. We might say we've, we've really transcended uh, the question of what, what is private, what is public. But what about private actors? Last year, 7-Eleven introduced facial recognition technology on top of their CCTV cameras across all of their Australian stores. And then there are smart billboards. With something like a smart billboard, it's referring mainly to that capacity to be interactive, to make an assessment of its possible audience. And it can present specific ads in relation to that. Is that a good thing? On the one hand, an advertiser is going to say, well, audiences want to see advertising that's relevant to them. And on the other... The darker implications come from what's going to happen to that data after that initial capture and that profiling. Is it going to be retained? Is it going to be on-sold to a third party? QMC, an Australian digital billboard company, is a good example of this. Their ads are all over Melbourne, and if you're watching them, you can bet that they're watching you too. Take, for example, their measurement system called the RDA GeoTribes Explorer, which targets audiences, profiling variables based on demographics, socioeconomic, attitudinal, media consumption, consumer behaviour, intention to purchase, audience segmentation, and comprehensive heat mapping so they can identify audience locations. If you're starting to feel a bit weird, you aren't alone. No, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable knowing that I'm being kind of watched, bit big brothery kind of. Yeah, a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, you see cameras everywhere. You go to the shopping centres, you go check out when you get your groceries, there's cameras there. I feel that my privacy is eroded in terms of um, my identity, who I am as a person. It's not just accept mass surveillance because it's convenient for us. We don't have to then think about it. Let's put safeguards in place. I feel like there's still discussions we need to have. That was Clancy Balin. Next, Fiona Wang explains how social media outlets utilize data analysis to draw users in and keep them addicted. Living in a digital world using social media such as Twitter, TikTok, or Facebook has become a big part of my life. When I was having a break in the class even for five minutes, I would open TikTok, a video sharing platform where I would scroll down from top to bottom to find interesting videos to watch. That's me, a social media adapter, I would say. TikTok, like other social media platforms, uses big data to analyze the swarm of numbers to find out its users' behaviors. I still remember one time when I was searching for birthday presents for my parents on TikTok. I typed the word birthday, and it came up with lots of videos about birthdays. But the next day when I opened TikTok, the first thing I saw was a whole page of videos about birthdays, which is surprising and convenient, but sometimes I feel like TikTok is spying on me, or not only TikTok and other social media as well. I am curious about how social media companies use big data to target their users. 
So I asked a professor of applied computing systems, Richard Sinnett. Uh, probably the simplest, most one that is most commonly used is called sentiment analysis. So while some platforms like say TikTok can do like or Facebook have like or thumb up or thumb down, a lot of other platforms they are using text. And so Twitter, you can tweet some,、uh, you know, something about I love Donald Trump or whatever it might be. And when you say I love, that basically is a positive thing. That's a nice thing. If you said I love Donald Trump, LOL. And that doesn't mean that you like him. It means you're being sarcastic. And so there are a range of approaches for analyzing that kind of data to give it a score. You can see what people like or don't like, and that's kind of what most of these big companies like Twitter and Instagram and others like that. They use this data to profile people. He told me that the way companies use sentimental analysis to profile every user based on their favorite and dislike on the social media and collect this data into their databases. So, if you like McDonald's or KFC, then they will send this information. Well, hey, this is a special offer on KFC, etc. And sometimes people can tweet about a topic, or they might say. I'm running late, dear. I'll be home late for dinner. But actually, they were in a an adult sort of sex massage place at the time because they didn't realize their device would had the the location turned on. And we now know they were in the sexy kitten club in St Kilda or something like this. And this is kind of where it now becomes a, a privacy issue. If someone says I'm in the sexy kitten cat club having a you know whatever it might be, and they're sharing that online, you know they can't say hey that was my private data. You're not allowed to say that. You know, they've already pushed out. Of, it's like having a blog on the internet, and you say, "No, that's my blog. You can't read my blog." Well, you've just thrown it out. Of course, I can. It's there, and it's not just social media. It's everything. It's like your your phone. If a phone can track everything about me, how can I actually protect my online privacy? So I asked Richard his thoughts. I know that if I'm using a platform like Facebook. Exactly, all the information they're collecting about me all the time, and so I just decided it was too complicated, and I I couldn't be bothered with giving all my data to these people anyway. So, I I, I withdrew, and that's probably the safest thing is just don't use the platform. People have an, a phone, and they use this phone for everything these days. I mean, whether it's for making phone calls, taking pictures or selfies, or for social media or browsing the internet, all of that is you know ties to you. I feel like it's impossible for a social media adapter like me to exist in an online world being surrounded by data, without complaining about privacy issues. Because with a phone, I am always retracted, and my data is always to be collected. So my phone knows where I go, what do I eat for the lunch, and even who are my parents. I know it's sometimes annoying for the exposure of privacy, but what else can I do? I cannot live without a phone. That was Fiona Wang. In our final story, Claudia Sue investigates the software behind search engines and how these so-called web crawlers can be used to invade our privacy. The internet is crawling with bots. Behind all the search engines like Google and Bing, swarms of bots are contributing to small searching and indexing jobs. They are known as web spiders or web crawlers. 
Web crawling is using software to collect web-published content of different types and store it on your local machine. Web crawlers have kind of been around for as long as the web's been around. So as a technology, it's existed for 35 years or so. As the director of the ARC Training Center, Professor Tim Baldwin points out that it's very important to make your crawlers compliant. There are actually all sorts of protocols to say, you know, certain content you're allowed to access, certain other content you're not allowed to, you know, sort of hierarchies of access. So maybe Google's allowed to access this, but um, other crawlers are not. So you need to, you know, working out what are the restrictions and making sure that your crawler is being compliant with the the restrictions using things like robots.txt protocols, say, or, or sitemaps. When crawlers are growing and having a wider impact on people's daily lives. What if they go wild? How would privacy issues come into play? In terms of privacy, there's sort of two classes of privacy attacks using crawlers. There's content which is linked off different people's web pages and openly accessible, but they don't realize it. Alternatively, it could be something like, I guess, the infamous Cambridge Analytica sorts of attacks, which was you know, a form of crawling, you know, this idea of you put together what looks like a fairly harmless uh, app that people sort of play around with on Facebook, not realizing that when you play this app, actually you're exposing all of your private data plus private data of other people in your social network. Because all of that content is actually web accessible, you're just saying, please, uh, crawlers, don't look in this directory. You, you shouldn't look in this directory. But there's no way of actually preventing it without removing all of that content from the web. And it can be very hard to get content out of the hands of crawlers once they've got it. According to Bot Traffic Report 2020, one of the ways that bots harm business is by engaging in web scrapping. Once you unconsciously fit those swarms with the personal information and the web content, they could be very greedy. You do not know me personally. However, I just know everything about you. This, this blackmail was sent to Lucy Shar one year ago, when she was studying computer science in the University of Melbourne. At first, I saw my password, and I was like, how did they know my password? I always thought my password was a strong one. They definitely had some way to extract the data from some website. That was why I was panicking about the email. And then when I was reading the email, I was like, there's no way that they got my masturbation video because I didn't do it. It's both funny and threatening to me. It is not a surprise to receive blackmails. Lucy was lucky to fix the leak with her IT knowledge. But what if it happens to an ordinary person or even thousands of people at one night? During the pandemic, some international students even found fake social accounts that used their personal information to borrow money from their friends. As an expert in organizational cybersecurity, Professor Artif Ahmad also exemplified how identity theft was involved in personal aspect. 
the issues that affect the individual are really quite different from the corporate in the sense that identity theft becomes a key problem. Somebody might be targeting you as an individual and they may be piecing together information about you to create enough of a profile to impersonate you. Your ability to reverse that, to get control over your own identity back is extremely difficult. And that's because the vast majority of services use very little limited information about you to authenticate you. If somebody knows your name, your date of birth, your phone number and your address, then that in many cases is sufficient to impersonate you. The nature of web crawling issue is not about the technique itself, but how people get information from the internet and what they do with the data they acquired. Different from the natural swarms, the ecosystem of web crawling is not built by the crawlers, but always by swarms of people behind them. That was Claudia Sue. The Artist from the Centre for Advising Journalism at the University of Melbourne is produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Clancy Balin, Fiona Wang, Claudia Sue, the Science Gallery in Melbourne, and all the best. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. See you next week.